Welcome to Good God, Conversations That Matter About Faith and Public Life. I'm your host, George Mason, and I am delighted to welcome to the program today, Danielle Troyer. Danielle, we're so glad to have you. Thanks for having me on. Well, Danielle, uh, we are uh, moving through this uh, COVID-19 phase, and that has affected Good God also, as uh, we are now operating uh, off of Zoom instead of sitting next to one another in a studio uh, that would be uh, much more intimate, but we're learning new forms of intimacy, aren't we? Yes, every day, right? Every day. Well, I want to say to everyone tuning in that Danielle is a Christian minister and has been a pastor and is a writer and a spiritual director now. She has been a friend of mine across many years, and we really first got acquainted when I got a random communique from Princeton Theological Seminary uh, asking if uh, this young woman could do an internship with me at Wilshire Baptist Church. H how do you remember that whole thing, Danielle? <laughs> Well, so for Princeton's program, we had to do uh, two internships and one of them needed to be in a church. And I remember being called in and the field ed director said, I don't know where to place you. <laughs> you just don't fit in any church. And he said, I'm trying to find a progressive Baptist church that might be willing to take you on. And I think I have someone in mind. And thank God you said yes, George, because I don't think he had a backup. So he was really not sure where he was going to put me for my church field ed. <laughs> well, we are so happy about that as well. And uh, I'm sure no thanks to us at Wilshire or me uh, as your supervising minister that year. Uh, nonetheless, we have um, watched you with great favor all these years as you've been a really remarkable minister, uh, both here in Dallas and around the country, uh, both through your own direct ministry, but also in your writing and leading conferences and things of that nature. So uh, it's been a joy to follow you and be part of your ministry. It has always been fun to be part of the Wilshire family too. So it was a good stroke of luck that he called you. Well, terrific. So I'm curious about, you know, you, you talk about how in that particular case, you know, a church like ours might have been somewhat of a unicorn uh, at, at the time. Uh, but here you were, uh, not even a Presbyterian, uh, but yeah. at a Presbyterian seminary, a woman pursuing ministry and theological education. Uh, how did all that come about for you? <laughs> Well, I, it took me probably until high school to realize that not everybody thought about theology. <laughs> you know, I asked my youth minister, you know, am I coming in here a lot? And he said, yes, you know, <laughs> a little more than most teenage kids I know, you know, don't come in and ask about eschatology on a Friday, you know. Uh, and I, I guess I just didn't realize that I was so fascinated with God. And so um, I, you know, was trying to discern what to do with that. And I honestly thought the church was the last place that I would end up um, in pastoral ministry. I thought maybe I would be a professor. Um, I just knew that I wanted to learn and to study and to, to help other people understand God. And so I found myself going to Baylor and I did a religion degree there and then um, really felt like I wanted to continue my studies in seminary. Still not sure exactly what that would look like. And so um, all my professors were pretty 
um, clear about how they thought that was the place for me to go. And I think they were right. It was a really good fit for me. There were so many different denominational people giving me so many different views and um, the student body was pretty diverse. And so it really allowed me to. So going back to your uh, high school years and the church you were in, uh, tell me more about that. What was the church? And tell me about your youth minister, because I think this is really so important as we think about how we nurture the call in other people. Yes. So I was lucky to be um, under Daniel Vestal at First Baptist at, uh, Midland when I was a young girl. And so he baptized me. And so the Vestal family has always been, you know, dear to my heart. Um, he left, I think, I guess I was maybe in late middle school when he ended up leaving and um, James Dennison came after him. And so um, Dr. Dennison was actually the one that, that met me at the end of the aisle when I walked into uh, ministry. And I was really affirmed and, and, and empowered by both of those pastors to do this work. And Charlie Dodd was my youth minister. And Charlie's been in youth ministry his whole life. And it's just such a faithful, wonderful, dear servant of Christ. Um, and he was so patient with me. I can't imagine what a disaster I was in youth ministry. I had so much energy and so many questions. And he was just so affirming and patient and kind. And um, I really feel grateful that I had such encouragement around me. Well, and you went to a place that really does nurture the life of the mind when you went to Princeton, uh, because Princeton is really known as one of our more theologically rigorous seminaries, I would say. Um, part of the uh, Reformed tradition uh, in and lots of lots of Karl Barth and one of our common favorites, uh, Jürgen Moltmann, who we'll talk about in just a few moments. So, uh, in a way, you you really went from all that curiosity that you were um, exploring in your youth minister's office to a, a place where you could really satisfy uh, some of that kind of thinking and 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 think theologically and get get well grounded. Yes, they, they helped me ask such good questions and explore so broadly. And um, I loved every minute of it. I know some people go to Princeton and say, this was just really not for me. But I, I went there and it was like a fish to water. I just loved, I loved it. If I could just stay there forever and take all the classes always, I probably would, would do that. So, Well, you ended up being a pastor for a season though, too, then. And so, you know, really here you were asking all the right theological questions and, and exploring that. And, and, you know, those of us who know you know that you could do just about anything in this world. You could, oh, you could teach, you could, you could preach, you could lead a big church, you could lead a, a, a community church like you did, you can do spiritual direction. So tell us about how you came to think that it was the right thing for you to become the pastor of the Journey Community Church. <laughs> So it actually started at Baylor when I happened into University Baptist Church in Waco. We were, we were, this is a, a, a little peek into Baylor life at the time. We had to, as our pledge sisters, show up at church together. That was what we did for like our, you know, bonding experience was we did church on Sunday morning. And she happened to be friends with Chris C., who was opening up University Baptist Church that Sunday. And she said, we're going to go support him. 
And it was a very non-traditional church. He was wearing jeans, which was just shocking at the time. Um, they played Hootie and the Blowfish, Hold My Hand is the Benediction song. And I was sitting there in the pew, and I mean, I was having an experience. You know, I thought, I, I didn't know that we could change the rules about what church was. Nobody told me this was possible. And then it's like a, a wheel started turning in my brain, and I started thinking, okay, this I could do. If I could imagine church in a different way for maybe people like me who sometimes have a hard time connecting in church, even though we love God a lot, this is something I want to do. And so um, Journey was a church where I was able to do that. And it was such a fun, fun, and deeply meaningful experience to try to figure out creative ways to help people connect to God um, and try to do that differently every week. And really differently meant a, a kind of different liturgical way of gathering, right? I mean, it was more of a church in the round and uh, dialogical sermons and things like that. Say more about how that looked and felt in, in terms of the way you led it. Yes, it's definitely dialogical. We had conversations instead of sermons. And so um, me or whoever was leading the conversation, it was usually me. Uh, but we had lots of bright people and thoughtful people that, that attended there. And we would start with, you know, a, a passage and talk a little bit about the background of the passage and kind of get it started. And then we would just ask questions. And um, the thing that was different is it's, it's kind of like a Bible study in that you go in really to ask questions and not to find answers. And we really allowed ourselves to just kind of play around in scripture, kind of do a midrash and, and just see what the community came up with. And it was lovely to see how um, I would have been thinking about it all week and had some things I wanted to say, but usually the, the wisest thing came totally out of left field from someone who commented that night. And it was like, oh, I hadn't even thought of that. This is this, the beauty of the community wisdom where the spirit is in the midst of all of us um, to help mm -hmm. us all learn and get closer to God. Uh, we always would follow up after the conversation with something to help it be holistic. So we would do a prayer station or a body prayer or art or um, something to kind of help us figure out how to move that from the mind into the rest of the body and into our lives. And so that was kind of where the creative, the creativity aspects got to be sort of fun. Um, we had communion. We always went to dinner afterward as an extension of our conversation and community time together. And so um, just the communal life was really important for us to live together. So I, I know that you were doing church in that fashion for, what, about 10 years, I guess, right? As yeah. the, the pastor of that church. <clears throat> but it's also not that you are uh, against the institutional or more traditional church. You're actually a member of an Episcopal church now, aren't you? Yes, I was about to say, it's so funny. People are like, so now you're at <laughs> Transfiguration, which is, you know, super high church. Right. So much sacred music, you know. I love all of it um, and, and really think that there's a, a place for all of it. I remember early in the emerging church days, people would say, well, talk to Danielle. She'll tell you to change everything. And I would say, I don't think that's right for your church at all. I think your church is doing a great job of being traditional. Wilshire is a great example of that. Wilshire is a great traditional church and mm -hmm. um, you do it well. And there's no reason for that not to exist. 
Um, I was only arguing for there to be other options for people who maybe don't fit there, you know. Well, let's, let's extend that conversation even a little more because whether you're in a more traditional church or you're in a, a less traditional or more uh, improvisational kind of community church that you were leading, there's something really deeper at work in all of this. And that was a much greater theological movement that has been taking place in American Christianity. And you were part of this as one of the founders and leaders of a movement called Faith Forward, uh, which is to be distinguished somewhat from our local group called Faith Forward Dallas, which is a, a local interfaith advocacy group. But this is more uh, a group that helped to to uh, spur people's imaginations about where the Spirit of God was moving the church, right? About how some of the old forms of uh, thinking and uh, doctrines that had not been well examined and, and were choking people were, were really having to give way to a new life uh, and re-examination in, in what was coming to be known as the emerging church, right? Or the emerging mm-hmm. church, depending on which you prefer. Uh, so uh, uh, what was it that you were trying to do with your colleagues in that movement uh, in various different uh, ecclesial settings? I think we realized that so many people were walking away from church, not because they didn't believe in God, but that they weren't, they weren't buying some of it. And the things that they had questions about weren't rude. They were fair, you know, Mm -hmm. it's like, well, if my, if my gay sister can't come here, I feel at, I feel a sense of dis-ease, you know, or I'm a little concerned about the marketing budget when the budget for the poor isn't as high. You know, people had really valid theological questions or I just don't think I can believe that I'm terrible and that Jesus um, had to be murdered by his father for that to be okay. You know, people had really fair questions theologically that they didn't think the church was answering well. And um, we agreed and we're asking those same questions. And I thought, yeah, these are some of the reasons why I didn't connect either. And so what would it look like if we really took them seriously and took their, their doubts about the theology that the church in, in the West was practicing and said, okay, if that's valid, like, let's think of another way to, to look at that. And how can we live that out in communal life? Well, I, I, th- I think it really did breathe new life into even traditional churches and gave new hope to pastors, uh, myself included, as we engaged in these conversations theologically, and it, it, it just caused us to get out the duster and, uh, and, and really uh, clean off our doctrines a bit and say, what is this like? Uh, how does this live today in our society and in our, in our culture? There are some specific ways in which I'd like to talk about some books you've written uh, in the second uh, section of our conversation here in just a moment. Uh, we're going to take a break here for a minute, but but I want to say, uh, I, I think you have been pushing these boundaries, and that's part of the, uh, the uh, title of a book uh, that we'll talk about in a moment for a while, and, and refreshing our faith in important ways. So, Danielle, thanks for being with us, and uh, let's take a break, and we'll be right back. Thank you for tuning in to Good God. We're grateful to provide this for you during this time of COVID-19 isolation. And we hope that it is a consolation to you during this time. There have to be lots of ways that we reach each other. And even though we can't be in a studio as we normally are producing these, we're finding the technology using Zoom and 
and communicating it to you through this programming. Uh, we hope that you'll find it to be encouraging to you as we make our way through these difficult days. And we're back with Danielle Schroyer uh, for our conversation uh, about the emerging church and about theology and how it is being refreshed in our generation in significant ways. Danielle, you've written uh, three books and contributed to others as well. Uh, I want to talk about two of them now in light of also uh, this emerging church movement that you were so much a part of. Uh, the first was sort of a, a book out of the gate, uh, so to speak, called Boundary Breaking God, in which you were trying to apply some of the theology of Jürgen Moltmann, uh, which just entranced you and did me, because as you know, I wrote my dissertation on his doctrine of the freedom of God in his uh, Trinitarianism. And uh, so, but I, but I think boundary breaking is a, a really key phrase that is, uh, uh, well, explain what you meant by that and how you think his theology helps us do just that. Well, in his um, theology of hope, he always, he explained basically all of scripture as this process of God moving outward, that God is always gunning for the margins, that God is always thinking about who to include next. And that was such a compelling and beautiful vision to me. And it seems so different sometimes than the way that people experience religion, which is about clamping down or saying we're in and you're out, or, you know, this is what we have to do for this to be right. And so it was my hope that in the book, I would be able to make Moltmann's really brilliant theology accessible for everyone who maybe doesn't want to sit down and read that. Um, and to understand that God is constantly calling us home, but also calling us out and that we should have a sense of bravery and a, a, a little bit of a heart for risk that we can mm. step into that and know that God's going to be there. And that uh, maybe the spirit has even prepared it for us before we get there. So this is an interesting point you bring up because I think, I think this has been one of the biggest shifts in Christianity in, or one of the great tensions in Christianity in our generation of doing ministry. Whereas I think for, for a very long time, we, we thought of the church and the gospel as a kind of somehow uh, sin remedy and sin management program, you know, so, something of, of that nature. And usually that was, uh, in the phrase of Jesse Jackson, it's, uh, it's, it's about the sin within, but what Moltmann and others are pointing out is that there's also the, the sin we're in. And that is the sin that, that's systemic, that keeps people from one another, that keeps people from the fullness of life that God wants for them. And instead of seeing that as sort of a sideshow to the church and the gospel, when you start thinking deeply about that and reading the Bible again, all of a sudden you realize, wait a minute, that's actually the main event. That's actually what God is up to, right? Yes, right. The idea that Sunday is supposed to help in other six days do the work in the world that we're supposed to be doing, <laughs> you know, instead of getting right with God and not thinking about how to get right with others, you know, yeah. Right. right. So you create a community that is fully open. And, you know, some of our churches are coming around to that now. And uh, it's 
hard work when you are a more traditional church and you're not just starting out saying this is, you know, here, here's the way we're going to organize ourselves. So there's a lot of pain going on in the church, breaking those boundaries because most of our churches traditionally have been, uh, you know, what, what you might call a bounded set. That is, let's establish the boundaries, right? And, uh, and, and instead of being what's known as a center set church, right? That is, you, you talk about what you have in common in the middle, and it all gravitates toward that. That's what organizes you rather than the fence around where you're either in or out. Yes. And that is very tough to make that transition when you're really committed to the bounded set form of church, right. because it requires a completely different form of leadership too, right? You know, the center set is, is um, you have to have a high level of trust and an openness to flexibility. And, um, you know, I can't say that we were as stable at journey as we, as we would have been if we were an institutional church. And so there's some really logistic problems that come with, with trying to make that work, um, it's fair to be to be a little bit afraid of it, but I do think that it's a pretty beautiful way to live. Moltmann's theology of hope and and all of his other writings are are filled with this uh, beautiful both endness to them, right? This dialectical approach that he has, that you know, Good Friday and Easter belong together, uh, that the here and the 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 now and the the then and the the future are, are, are all together. They're not, you don't have to choose. They're, they're, they're in tension with one another. What do you think uh, Moltmann's theology has to offer to people during this COVID-19 period of time that we're going through? The phrase that comes to mind first is the horizon of hope. Mm -hmm. You know, the idea that we're in a we're in a time when we don't we don't actually know what the end date is you know we don't actually know what normal is going to be and if there's going to be a re quote return to normal and um how for Moltmann that would be a, a call to faithfulness that we look at this horizon of hope and say again we trust that the spirit is making a way where maybe right now we don't feel like there is a way um, I think it requires a high level of trust that the spirit of God might be up to something, even if this wasn't, you know, a plan or something we can say that God did or whatever, but that there is this, this deep sense of faith in the spirit to hover over all of these places and bring life from them. Mm -hmm. um, I think he has a lot to say about that. But I think also it's really, gosh, it's showing us the flaws in our system, isn't it? And so this idea of the crucified God and um, Moltmann's, certainly not his, his words, but his um, affirmation of the liberation of the oppressed and the um, preferential, preferential option of the poor. I think we have to look at our structures and systems and say, we can't unsee this now. Yeah. Um, yeah. This is really an apocalyptic time, I think, in the, the, the real true sense of how what has been hidden from our eyes is being revealed. Uh, mm -hmm. the, the things that are now, not just the things that are to come. And uh, it, it, I think a lot of this is rooted in Moltmann's own experience. And so much of his theology is experiential, right? And he thinks it should be. Uh, but it should also include the experience of God, which is even more extraordinary in that God is deeply feeling and experiencing with us this time of social alienation that we're, we're going through, the anguish of creation, the, uh, the, the sense of, 
uh, of hopelessness. And, and he used his own, this, that phrase, hope against hope, uh, mm-hmm. which when he was in a British uh, prisoner of war camp uh, and was looking through the barbed wire fence uh, out into the open field, wondering if there would be anything in the future for him, uh, that's when God really showed up for him. And it, it really distinguished hope from optimism, didn't it? Can you make that distinction, the difference between optimism and hope? Yes. Optimism is what we're seeing on Instagram, right? Like, it's going to be fine. It's great. You know, make your sourdough bread and enjoy times or whatever. Um, hope holds the darkness and the light together and knows that there's beauty and goodness in both of them that's waiting for us, right? That there's something... There's something about the alchemy of both of those things, about the difficulty and the joy that that actually forms us and brings us wisdom. And hope doesn't have to shun the difficulty. So if you're having a terrible time or if you're feeling depressed or if you're worried about a loved one, there in, in hope there's room for that. And in optimism, it feels like that's unwelcome and you're almost shamed for it, right? To, to right, which you. makes it difficult for us to honor the feelings that we have mm-hmm. of sadness and grief and loss and all of those things that if you look at biblical faith are very valid. In fact, they make relationship with God truly genuine. Mm-hmm. So. Well, yeah. that, that moves me to want to address also, we were, we were talking about uh, this matter of how the church sort of got into interpreting its work as sin management, uh, really, uh, and the overcoming of it and all that. Your, your uh, book called Original Blessing uh, really goes into some great detail that unveils some of the missteps the church has taken across the centuries about this that has really warped our understanding of the goodness of God and the dignity of human beings and what the gospel is. So instead of original sin, uh, you want to assert that we bear an original blessing. So how did you get from the one to the other? Because Christianity, we know, has been filled with this history of original sin. Yes. Uh, So original blessing, Matthew Fox coined that term in the 80s, um, and I think it's the perfect term, and I hope it gets widely used in the years to come. Um, But it's the idea that we're we're not born sinful, we're born human. It's just as simple as that. Adam and Eve were human when they ate of the fruit. They were human when they left the garden. Um, There was nothing that changed in how they were human before or after, except for that they learned something about themselves, which is that they can make mistakes and God can still love them. And um, it's only through those mistakes that we actually start to see ourselves clearly in ways that we didn't want to confront before. And so maybe it's not a fall. Maybe it's a revealing, you know, it's an apocalyptic moment inside of each of us that we have to confront that says, I didn't know I was capable of that, but now that I know that, I have to change, you know? And uh, I think this is how God works transformation. So um, seeing ourselves as good, as inherently good, and how, and knowing that that's not lost anywhere, it's, it's that we, we maybe get disconnected from our own sense of it, but it doesn't actually ever go away, is a very different way of approaching um, our own human errors. 
Yeah, and it's interesting that you should come out of Princeton Seminary and write that book, right? <laughs> it's maybe because I had to read all that Calvin and Bart that I said this, right? I had lots of nice, uh, rousing conversations about this. I've had that for, yeah, these conversations for years. But I do think it's just, it's a huge misstep, like you said, you know, when we, when we give away, when we give away our, our sense of human goodness, Everything else down the line theologically gets really messed up. You know, we could spend two hours talking about that back and forth, sure. right? Sure. Well, this is the nature of systematic theology, isn't it? It's like a spider web. When you, when you touch any part of the web, every other part of it is affected. Yes. And we had a very, very significant moment happen with Augustine uh, in making certain interpretations of uh, St. Paul uh, in which he you know, really made central this idea of our uh, our sin and guilt being uh, in need of uh, removal uh, in order to uh, uh, in order to be acceptable to God, and that that became uh, a matter of um, sort of the foundation of grace, if you will. Uh, instead uh, of of creation, uh, it became uh, you know something that Christ had to do. Uh, and really, grace has been all the way from the beginning, hasn't it? Yes. Yeah, I mentioned in the book that we it's like we've set up this sense of like grace-induced PTSD, that we have to feel really bad and, and almost think that we are really bad for grace to count in some way, yes. you know? The worst feel grace is, and... I mean, that is just a really, talk to any psychologist and they'll say, well, that's just not the way we should do this, you know? Right. We know enough about human psychology to know that doesn't work that way. Um, so instead to just know that God has been just deeply faithful to us forever, that's, that's God's way, is that we continually turn away and God continually pulls us back home and goes after us. And that is, that is the story as long as it's been around. Mm-hmm. Well, Danielle, I think you and I could talk theology like this uh, and let people overhear this conversation from now until kingdom come. Uh, but what we both agree is that the kingdom has come among us. Uh, that is, God's presence is with us even now, uh, is near to us, and we're invited to join it and to uh, be on the trail of what God is up to uh, in, in Christ. And so thank you so much for all the different ways in which you are contributing to our spiritual life and our Christian convictions in the world. And I look forward to another conversation with you uh, real soon. Thank you, George. Thanks for being on Good God. Good God is created by Dr. George Mason, produced and directed by Jim White, social media coordination by Cameron Vickery. Good God, Conversations with George Mason is the podcast devoted to bringing you ideas about God and faith and the common good. All material copyright 2020 by Faith Commons.